0: May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, mercy tonight. But we're going to, if you remember, uh, I talked some about mercy uh, a few months ago when I, was, when I did a series on grace on Sunday mornings. And I talked a little bit about the difference between mercy and grace. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to take a different approach to mercy. And so hopefully you'll be able to see um, this in a new and fresh way. So mercy is the gift of gentleness towards us from someone who has every right to give us justice and whatever consequences fit our offense. It's the gift of gentleness towards us. So we deserve Uh, We deserve right punishment for that which we have done. And the gift of mercy uh, is gentleness rather than justice. And so mercy changes us. First by shocking us with an unexpected presence. Then by dignifying us with its unexpected impact. Now, I know that you have a context in your life of mercy. I would find it hard to imagine that anybody in here cannot say that there's been any time in their life where they have been a recipient of mercy, or where you've experienced mercy. And the thing about uh, mercy from God, but but all mercy, uh, it comes as a shock. Just that it's there. You know, mercy is unexpected. Because if you go into a situation expecting mercy, then that would be a couple Sundays ago in paradox. That's what's called entitlement, right? So you don't expect mercy. It just comes upon you. And then it shocks you with this, uh, you know, the amazing presence that it's there. But then it also has a dignifying effect. What do I mean by that? When you are a recipient of mercy there's a sense in which you feel dignified because, because someone has, has deemed you valuable enough to extend mercy to you, right? And so you feel dignified in that. Like, like, you cared enough about me. I was important enough to you. So think about these feelings that mercy creates. Mercy is both scandalous, it's, it's glorious and scandalous, But what I want you to see tonight is that it is the very heart of God. It is the very heart of God. Now look at this is just a little tiny snippet for you to consider. Exodus 24, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Remember, we're in Exodus 24, where where many people believe. That the God of the Old Testament is an angry God and He's a vicious God and He's a vengeful God. And here we are in Exodus 24. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Then in 2 Chronicles 30, we have another example. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn His face from you or if you return to Him. Joel, too, if you're familiar with the prophecy of Joel, there's some very harsh words in Joel, and yet the Bible says, So rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Then we find these uh, moments in the New Testament under the new covenant, like 2 Corinthians 1. Where the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's an amazing statement. And so what I want you to see is that mercy is what pours naturally from his fatherly heart. If you are a parent, then you, you're, you probably have a or because everyone in here has a parent, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this would be true because I don't know the context. But if you are a parent, then there's a good chance that you have a context for mercy with regard in your parental role as a parent. One of the things that parents do on a continual basis is show mercy to their children in varying degrees according to their maturity, according to the, you know, the situation, the circumstances, and so on and so forth. And so a home without mercy would be a very, very difficult and uh, harsh place to, to grow up, to live, to be molded by. it. It would be, it'd be, it would be very painful and dysfunctional in many ways. And so God, as a perfect father is filled with mercy, it has to be that way, and mercy flows from his heart. Now, God is the cause and source of all mercy. So apart from his existence, we would have no category for such a concept. If there were no God, if we didn't know God, the only reason why when I say the word mercy... You have any context of what it is I'm talking about? Is because God has established a context for mercy. It'd be the same thing if I said the word love. If it weren't for God, we would not have any context for the word love. We wouldn't know what that meant. We wouldn't know w- what it is. We wouldn't know how to. Now, just because people pervert it, uh, still the the basic concept of it is embedded in us as image bearers. I want you to think about something. You know, I like to I like to use this illustration because I like to watch, uh, you know, there's not a lot of things on TV I like to watch, but there are some things I do like to watch. I like to watch anything where one thing is eating another thing. I like that. It entertains me. Do you know what does not exist in the animal kingdom? Mercy. There's no mercy, and that's one of the reasons why some of you can't watch it, and you're like, oh, it's so, you know, and I always make fun of you for that. I say that's because, you know, if you were the mama lion, you wouldn't feel that way. If it was your kid starving, you know, you just got to think in the right context, but here's the thing, animals don't show mercy to each other ever. They have no context for that. Do you know why? Because they're not image bearers. That's why. There's no no mercy. If you're hungry and something walks up and it's edible, you eat it. Sometimes you just kill it just to kill it. No mercy. So the context of mercy is, is a context born out of the fact that we are image bearers and that God put that within us. So for God, mercy is not a feeling that He drifts into. When he's in a generous mood. But it's the ever-flowing stream from the deepest part of his heart. His heart is always flowing with mercy. Always. It's never not flowing with mercy because it is who he is. So for <clears throat> the sake of clarification and make sure that we're all you know, on the same page... Let's be reminded that mercy is the withholding of punishment deserved. The withholding of punishment deserved is mercy. Now, grace is different because it's the giving of a gift undeserved. And again, a lot of people have some foggy theology that that mixes these two things together and they are not the same and they should not be mixed together. Just because they're often mentioned together does not mean they're synonymous because they are not. They're different. Grace is the giving of a gift undeserved. So think of it this way. Think of mercy as uh, it's God's generous towards us in non-punishment that we don't we don't face punishment for everything that is due us under the presupposition that you are saved because ultimate justice will take place but even whether you're saved or unsaved in this life in this life it's not, it's not an exact science of reaping and sowing, isn't it? It's not, is it? No. All of us, whether we're saved or unsaved, many things in this life seem to go unpunished. There's delayed, uh, you know, there's a delayed consequence oftentimes, right? And so we, we can all say without any hesitation, that all of us have gotten away with things. When we should have not, some of us with a whole lot more, but we've all gotten away with things, right? And that's not because we're a Christian. Now, here's the thing. At the end of this life, there's coming an account, and the account will be completely 100% accurate and justified top to bottom. But in this life, it's a different story. It's a different story. So, it, but grace would be would be God's generous provision towards us. See, grace comes to us. Think about this. See, we mercy is is us, you know. Dodging the bullet that we deserved, grace just c- comes at us. There's no uh, grace. Doesn't need a uh, grace. Is not the response of anything in particular. It just is. God is gracious. God's gracious to us in a bazillion ways. From everything from the graciousness of God that He sends rain to water the earth, to grow the plants, to, to okay? But the rain is not in response to something that you did. It's just grace, right? And 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 on and on it goes. So we couldn't even comprehend or calculate how many times every day is God gracious to us that we're completely oblivious to. It's 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 unthink- it's mind boggling, grace upon grace upon grace. Right, and that's not in resu- it's not a, it's not a it's not a result of something that we do, it just is. Okay, so that's a good way for you to understand it. So there are two sides of the same coin. I've said that before. But God is abundantly and equally rich in both grace and mercy, mercy and grace. Now I want to look at this familiar passage from Matthew 11. Now here we have these famous words where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now here's what is fascinating about that passage of Scripture. It's the only place in the Bible where Jesus refers to his heart. It's the only time Jesus gives us specific insight into his heart. The only time. And so when he talks about his heart, he says something that is very remarkable. And if you look at the context of what it is framed in, it's even more remarkable the longer you you sit and stare and consider the ramifications of what he's saying here. You labor and you're heavy laden you' you're, you're burdened down,'re you're, you're weary, you're tired, you're worn, you're frustrated, your your hope is fading, your your peace is fleeting. And he says. That he'll give you rest. And how is he going to do that? By taking his yoke upon you. By assuming, see, a yoke is not something that brings rest. It would be like saying, you know, it'd be like my wife saying, Tony, why don't you just take a break? Here's the rake. You can't take a break with the rake. You can't take a break with a broom. It's not not an instrument of relaxation. Neither is a yoke. But by taking this rake or this broom or this shovel, you'll learn from him. And he says about his heart that he's gentle and lowly. That we're going to receive this rest. That in our weariness, we're going to find relief. And the context of it is because his heart is gentle and lowly. That's very interesting to me that he says that. You'll find rest for your souls. So here's really the, the, the most important statement I'll make tonight for, you, for your understanding of what it is I want you to understand. And it is this that gentleness is the experience of mercy see mercy is something mercy happens to us mercy is granted to us mercy but mercy is not what we experience when mercy happens to us gentleness is what we experience that's what we feel. That's what, that's what happens in our heart. That's what we receive as a result of the gift of mercy. And so what Jesus says here, because listen, this whole, the whole context of what Jesus wants to see about his, his heart is, is that in this mercy... We're going to experience gentleness. Now, I just don't think that any of us naturally think about this. And we really should. We don't think about this this experience of mercy being gentleness. Jesus says that the core of who he is, is gentleness. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Now, lest you, uh, you know, get mentally off track and, and, and start rushing off in the wrong direction too far, uh, let's, let's bring some, some balance into this. Look at Revelation 19. Look at how gentle Jesus is. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is not a picture of gentleness, is it? I mean, in no stretch of the imagination. See, in that moment, think about the context of Revelation 19. In that moment, Jesus is the the one whose heart continually flows with gentleness is returning for his enemies. And so we see this picture of God, who who is clearly the Lion of Judah. He is clearly the King of glory, the strong and the mighty. And the list goes on and on and on and on. He is the the undisputed, uh, unchallenged, invincible, undefeated, ultimate... Warrior of the universe. As he's coming back. So how can Jesus. Specifically be both. Gentle and lowly. And. Wearing a robe dipped in blood. How how does that work and what we have to understand is well not just that those are two different contexts but but that there's more to this the bible's teaching us something about god in this it's teaching us that our experience of him is determined by our posture toward him That not everyone will experience. See, like I said earlier, mercy is extended to both saved and unsaved people. Both both, uh, friends of God and enemies of God in this life. It's not relegated to just one side or the other when we're talking about just this life. But here's the thing, that only one group of people is going to experience this gentleness. This gentleness. So, for example, James chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, I mean, there's a perfect example of Two sides of the same coin, right? Same God. Two completely opposing experiences. Two completely opposing responses based on the posture towards God, right? So a great example of this would be... uh, There's lots of them, but one of them might be the the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. So in John chapter 8... Jesus uh, is confronted by the Pharisees. They have this, you know, half naked woman that they just caught in the act of adultery. They bring her before Jesus. They all have their stones in their hand and they're ready to stone her to death. And they're trying to snag Jesus up. It really doesn't have anything to do with, um, you know, the, the woman really at all. But so it's a scandal. Right? It's a scandalous situation. Here's a woman caught in adultery, and so here's the big scandal. She's out in public. It's got to be super you know, humiliating and embarrassing for her and so on and so forth. And so, but the scandal in John chapter 8 is not the undressed woman standing out in public and even standing before God in all of her shame. That's not the scandal. The scandal is Jesus' response to her. That's the scandal. See, because at the end of this interaction, Jesus says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that's interesting. Notice what he says. And notice the way in which he says it. He first extends mercy then after the the experience of gentleness, he calls her to a new way of living. Right? Now, I just want you to... Some of you are like, "Well, well, gee, that's obvious. Well, is it? So what if you reverse those two? What if you reverse them? What if Jesus first calls her to live in a new way. Then says something about neither do I condemn you. Now what you have is a conditional situation where his response of not condemning her is predicated on her performance in the first statement. Based on you cleaning up your life. See, how many people today ha- have bought into a religion based on the inverted nature of those two statements? They believe in a religion, in a God, that you clean your act up and then God will love you. You clean your act up and then God will do good things for you. You clean your act up and God, and if good things aren't happening to you, it's because you haven't cleaned up your life enough or done enough good things or done, right? That, and that's the, the theological mindset of a lot of people. But that's not what happens. What happens is mercy comes first and it's through the experience of gentleness that then this woman is able to respond in such a way as to live her life in a completely different way. Now, again, I said that it's predicated on our posture towards Him. And so if you're familiar with the story, then you... Remember that he says to the men holding the stones, he says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, right? And they start dropping all their stones and walking away. And then Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? He asks her a question. And the key to the whole thing is in her response. She doesn't say, well, how should I know, or I don't know, or, you know, who are you, or that's not what happens. He says, where are your accusers? And she says, "Uh, well, where are those who has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. That's what she said. No one, Lord. You see, posture. Now, if she wouldn't have said that, we might have a completely different outcome. But she postured herself. She said, no one, Lord. In that moment, she realized who she was standing before. She confessed him as that. And then his response to her is merciful. See, think about this. The truest sense of who we are is known by those whom we love the most. Because now all of us wear masks and all of us have pretense in our lives to some degree, some more than others, and all sorts of various things in them. But who, who knows you the best? It's not who loves you the most. It's who you love the most. Now what that means is that the sad reality of what I just said is that there are people who the truest sense of who they are is known by the people that they work with. Because the true love of their life is not people, but it's their occupation. Now, now I want you to think about this with me for a second. Why is it that the truest sense of who you are is known by who, who you love the most? Because who or what you love the most, okay, who you love the most, think about it. Who you genuinely love the most. In order for someone to be in that category, what do I know is true? I don't even need to know who the person is. I just need to. I, I just know this: that every person in this room has someone at the top of their love pyramid. Now, there may be people that think they're at the top of your love pyramid, and they may be wrong, and that's sad. They may think that this and that, but the bottom line is is that in your heart there is one person at the top of your love category, and let's say in a healthy scenario, that's under Jesus, one human being. Now here's what I know about that person. I know that everyone has that person, and here's what I know about that person. If that's the person you love the most, well then, that's a person that you that's a person that you let your guard down around because you love them the most. If you love them the most, you have a high a high degree of trust in that person. You can't say that I love you the most, but I don't trust you. You can't say that. You can say I love you but don't trust you, but you can't say I love you the most and don't trust you. That doesn't work. See, there's the. do you know who you're gonna be? And here's the thing, I'm not saying there could be no one on this earth that you're 100% or, you know, that you're transparent before. Some, some people play games with everybody in their life. But there's somebody that they're most transparent with. You following me? Somebody. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Everyone has somebody they love the most, and that's the person that they they trust. It's the person that they'll they'll be most transparent with. That's the person that you'll be most vulnerable with. See, some people are have that have just almost no ability to be vulnerable whatsoever. They're emotionally broken. They, they have all kinds of, of, of uh, problems. That's a problem. But you're still most vulnerable with the person you love the most. Because, see, true love creates an, a... Uh, love creates Safety remember a couple weeks ago I, I said I was talking about how true love casts out fear remember that we're talking about courage because true love creates safety see if you, if, you don't have, if you don't feel safe in a relationship you got a love problem there's a love problem you got broken love so it creates safety it casts out fear So when it comes down to, now I want you to think about this, when it comes down to how God deals with our sin, relationship determines response. Relationship determines response. Every time. Now what did I not say? I did not say performance determines response. Now, you may live that way. You certainly know people who live that way. You're no doubt surrounded by people who live that way, but that's not the truth. But that's just an errant lie. That's false doctrine that's creeped into our lives. That's some man-centered understanding of who God is. But when it comes to how God deals with our sin, what it's predicated on is relationship. Relationship, relationship. When she said, when Jesus said, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Bingo. Relationship. That's what predicated the response to Jesus. So uh, when I was talking about how true love casts out fear, remember I, I talked about in uh, Proverbs 15 where the Bible says that the Lord is far from the wicked. Remember that conversation? Remember what we talked about? Remember I said that, well, wait a minute. The Bible teaches the eminence of God. That God is in everywhere, in every place, at every time. So how is God far from the wicked? He's not far in distance. He's not far in proximity. What is that verse talking about? He's far in what is it? Relationship. Remember that? The distance is in relationship. It's all relationship. It determines the response of God towards our sin. So that's when we, you can't have a conversation about the, the, the mercy of God and the experience of gentleness if you don't understand how this works. So if you are here tonight and you are a beloved child of God, if that's your position, if your posture is a beloved child of God, then... That 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for as long as you have breath in your lungs, that reality determines the reaction of God to your sin. I don't think you believe me. I think that on a daily basis what happens is you Convince yourself that God's reaction to your sin is predicated on b- the, b- the way you've experienced it in every other way in your life. It's predicated on your behavior and your performance. And, your, and so you mope around and you say, well, I got this because I deserve this and that's why God gave it to me. This is where we would all be if we didn't have a Bible. This is what everyone would believe if you didn't have a Bible. If you didn't have a Bible and all you knew was that God was real, that's what every single one of us would believe. But when we have a Bible and lo and behold, we learn what it actually says, what we discover is something vastly different. We discover that God responds to everything in our life based on the relationship. And, and here's the thing. We also learn that we're not the judge of our circumstances. Every time a saved person starts to, you know, get themselves worked up into a posture of, you know, This is bad. This is terrible. God's punishing me now, you know, which all of us have done at some point in time in our life. It's just, it's foolishness. What are we doing? What what just happened? We've reverted back to our childhood somehow. Somehow I'm back in the third grade and, you know, my, uh, there's, my teachers got me standing on the fence at recess once again for the umpteenth billionth time. You know, I don't get to do anything fun because I'm, you know, uh, a problem, a discipline problem in class. Now that really happened and that really is true, but that's not who God is. (laughs) That's not at all who He is. And so even when I experience things that cause me discomfort or frustration or unrest or even, you know, all sorts of degrees of, of trials and tribulations, so on and so forth... Uh, what's the mercy of God is at play in all of those situations and circumstances. Because the Bible teaches that as his child, everything that happens in my life, he's orchestrating for what? My good. My good. For your good. That's important to understand. So if if I'm a beloved child of God... Then I can say, instead of punishing me for my sin, he absorbed the sum of my debt entirely. Now I want you to think this through for a second. Because this is this is the this is what drives me insane right here. Now, this is, let me rephrase that. This is one of the many things that drive me insane. Everyone, everyone that I talk to says. 100% of the time, you're all tangled up and frustrated and bummed out and beat down and, and filled with condemnation. And so here's how the conversation, I sit down with you and I look you in the eye and I go, okay, let's just start at the beginning. Let me ask you a simple question. Did Jesus die for your sin? Yes or no? That's just all I want to know. Nobody's ever said no and nobody's ever said, mm, I'm not sure. That's never happened. Every time, yes. Now, he died for your sin? Yes. You sure about that? Yes. You are 100% sure about that? Yes. He died for my Because if you don't know the answer to that, then we got a whole other conversation we have to have. But you say yes, I say, okay, Great. He died for your sin. He took the punishment for your sin, right? Yes. And I go, well, then why are you punishing yourself for your sin? Then what's going on right now? Why are you dragging in here all molly grubby? Huh? What are you doing? You're self-condemning. You're denying the reality of the cross. That's what you're doing. Now, I'm not not advocating that you pretend like when things are hard or bad or difficult or whatever, that they're not. But what I am saying is you better be clear about what's actually happening and what you're saying is happening. Because you can't just unravel the cross and say, well, he died for most of my sins. But right now, what's happening is I'm, I'm bearing the weight of these particular sins. Oh, so now the death of Christ is insufficient. In other words, you're stuck. You're stuck. And you know you're stuck. So what we have to do is we have to back up and we have to realize, now instead of punishing me for my sin... Does he chastise those whom he loves? Yes. And let me ask you. Is that chastisement? Is he chastising you for retribution? Hmm? Well then why are you acting the way you're acting? Why are you believing the way you believe? Or is he correcting you? For your benefit. So you can say. If you're a beloved child of God. Instead of punishing me for my sin. He absorbed. The sum. The totality. Not 99.9%. Every single sin. That I ever committed. That I and thinking about committing now, and that I will ever commit for the rest of my life, was all absorbed on the cross entirely. Amen. And then the second reality is, if I'm a born-again child of God, instead of giving me the hell I deserve, He gives me His heaven. So what we could say based on Scripture is that whatever it is that we're experiencing, whatever it is that we're experiencing. Now, here's what this means. This means that you have to relinquish, you have to relinquish your insistency on understanding what is happening to you. You have no right God never says anywhere in Scripture that He's gonna write down, uh, you know, He's gonna send you a document containing all of the things that He's doing to you and the reasons why and when and how and so on and so forth. That is that negates faith. If a relationship with God is not walking by sight, but walking by faith, then that means there's gonna be a, a large portion of time that we're unaware of what God is doing. How it's going how long it's going to last, how you know there's going to be a lot of times when things are happening to me and I know that God may be chastening me, God's, but whatever it is, whatever's happening, God's using it for my good, and it's regardless of whether or not I can figure out how that might work out or not work out. Amen? That's a fact. And so everything that happens in the life of a child of God is in preparation for. Because what does it mean that he's going to work all things for those that are called according to his purpose? Well, what is his purpose? That we would be with him forever in heaven. And so everything that happens in our life is used by God to prepare us for our eventual arrival in our permanent destination where we were meant to be all along. It's a preparation for heaven. So God gives me His heaven instead of giving me the hell I deserve. See, none of us deserves this generosity from Jesus. We don't deserve it. We're not entitled to it. Yet this is what Christianity is. This is what a relationship with God is. That's the whole... You can't can't share the gospel with somebody and not express the fact that you're you're getting something that's radically and, and, and totally undeserved. I love the quote by Richard Sibbs I put there on your handout. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's a great thing to remember. You can't out sin his mercy. His mercy is gonna drown your sin every single time. Every single time. He can't fail. You understand? A, I mean, I feel like I say this every time I preach on a Wednesday. It just somehow, I just want you to understand, whatever it is that's going on in your life, you just go back to my questions. Does God love me? Can God fail? Does God love me? Can God fail? If He loves me and He can't fail, I don't need, I don't need answers to any other questions. I know the answer to those two questions. I don't need any other questions. See, gentleness, it may very well be the most underrated and most needed reality in our modern Christianity. Because, see, here's the thing. When it comes to gentleness, many of us would find it hard to articulate what it means. But... We know what it feels like to come in contact with. I mean, if I said to you, explain to me the gentleness of God, you might have some trouble. You might kind of hem-haw around a minute and go, "Ah, let me get back to you. But if I said to you, well, what does it feel like? What does it feel like? What does it feel like to, to, to experience the gentleness of God? It's shocking. It comes out of nowhere and it brings dignity to us. And it's wonderful. It's one of the most amazing and, and wonderful feelings in the world. And, and it's, so, it, it's, so, it's so left field generated. What I mean by, by that is it's like the, it's like the warden walking through the prison doling out pardons I mean what a, what a, if you're sitting in a cell paying you know that you have some responsibility that's landed you there regardless of what your opinion is about whatever it is so there you are sitting in a cell the warden comes walking down the hall, passing these papers out, hands one through the bars to you. You take the piece of paper and you see pardon at the top of it. Your first response is going to be It's April Fool's. It's a joke. This can't be real. This isn't happening. Because you have no context for that. That's what mercy is. That's mercy. That's the mercy of God. That's what he does. It's like, the, it's like the, the, the 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 unfaithful spouse with the shattered marriage who gets served the envelope that they know what's in it. And they open the envelope to pull out the divorce documents and what they find in there is a letter of forgiveness it's shocking that's the way our heart interacts with the mercy of God it's shocking but here's when here's when it's not shocking it's not shocking when we deceive ourselves into believing that it's not happening. When we deceive ourselves into thinking that, that other things are going on. Again, again, the, the person, listen, the, you take the same two examples I just gave you and all I got to do is change the posture and everything changes. Here's the picture of the modern Western Christian. They're sitting in the jail cell. And they're mad that they're in the jail cell. Because they don't deserve to be in the jail cell. And they're frustrated. And they're thinking, God... Why have you put me here? I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And they're counting off all the people that they're more faithful than and all the things that they've done that have, that have entitled them to getting. And then the warden comes along and hands them a piece of paper and it says pardon on top. And you know what they say? It's about time. Right? Or the unfaithful spouse. Oh, I've talked to a million of them. Yes, they're unfaithful. But you don't know the monster that I've been married to, Pastor Tony. You don't know how horrible that you just don't know what I put up. You don't know. Listen, it's not my fault. They forced me to do that. I mean, it, it's all I could. It's a miracle that I made as long as I did. I mean, they're the most horrible, wicked person you could ever imagine. And then you open up the divorce papers, and you find a letter of forgiveness, and you know what you think? Well, finally, they've seen the light. They know how amazing I am. They should be lucky to be married to me. They should be lucky that I was only as unfaithful as I was. See, that's when it's not amazing. Same scenario, same story. Posture, position. So when we experience gentleness, we get a taste of the quality of life that existed before sin ruptured the world. Go back and read Genesis 2. And just notice the the gentleness of god experienced in the garden i mean with adam he was so gentle so gentle and then after sin ruptures the world god shows up still gentle but the experience is utterly different utterly different So how do we know if we've been experiencing the gentleness of God? Well, I think that uh, two ways. First of all, I think internally. When we, when we have a, a good context of the mercy of God applied in our life and in gentleness internally, there's a gradually increasing awareness of how merciful God has dealt with us because of Jesus. You see, we, because internally, here's the thing. I know me. I can never know you like I know me, but I know me. And because I know me, I know God has to, be, has to have unlimited mercy because He loves me. In order to fully know me and love me, you'd have to be you'd have to have an unlimited resource of mercy and he loves me so so internally we would become very aware of the mercy of god because we know who we are but then also externally so so what we wouldn't we can't see internally but we can see externally and then we're going to discover that we're gradually becoming more and more tender with others because here's what you can't do. You can't experience mercy in the gentleness of God and then be unmerciful towards others, impatient towards others, frustrated, always reacting instead of responding. Mm-mm. What's inside comes outside. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Imagine a world where we related to one another and we treated one another in ways that dignify instead of demean. Imagine that. Imagine a world where we We related to each other not based on what we think about each other, not based on what we experience with each other, but we relate to one another solely based on the way God relates to us. Think about all the things that would have to change for that to become a reality. Think about the way that you would have to change simple things like the way that we listen. The way that we listen. The way that we self-examine. The way that we would would have the the wherewithal to ask ourselves, why Why does this bother me so much? What's going on in me that's creating this angst and this unrest and this uneasiness towards this person think about the world that we live in where everyone just lives in the liberty to lash out online about anything you want to to let the world know your opinion to where you listen we we have blown this man as a I mean, and we're all going to face judgment for it. And it's going to be bad. Because our lives are built around being right. But are we right? See, here's my fear. My fear is that We're going to have good theology and horrible practice. I'm just being honest with you. Is I don't think the world is the problem. I think the church is the problem. The most appalling things I see and hear all come from church people. That's what makes me sick to my stomach is what church people do and what church people say. How, how church people can just write other people off. Just write them off because, I mean, it's just normal. It's normal to just be outraged towards somebody who sits on the opposite side of the fence of whatever your cultural opinion is, your preferences, your politics are. And you know what most of it is? Non biblical personal standards of acceptability. That's what most of it is. And you know what's gonna happen is that me and you are gonna stand before the fountain of mercy and he's going to look at me and you in the face and say what happened where's the mercy where's the mercy did you not experience my gentleness And just the abundance of mercy that poured out of my life upon you. It's it's a scary thought. It's a scary thought. So what's the solution? What do we need to do? How do How do we fix this? We fix it. It's very simple. We fix it by daily remember how merciful God has been and continues to be with us. Gentleness can and will become the experience of our Christianity. Do you know why do you know why people who profess faith in Christ lack mercy? is because they've lost sight of,'ve lost the, the, the bottom line problem is, it's just an inflated view of self. What we need is a fresh dose of how bad we really are. That's what we need. You want to talk about the, the most unpopular message. In America today, come to church and hear how bad you really are. But that's what we need. When I find myself struggling to be merciful, it's always because I've forgotten how much I need mercy. And if I wake up every day, And remind myself of my desperate continual need for mercy. Mercy begins to pour out of my heart towards those around me. I want you to look at Ephesians 4. Look at what Paul says. He says, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. He says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He pleads. Live the life you were born to live. With all lowliness and gentleness. Long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love. Isn't that something? He pleads with us. He didn't say, go out there and show them how right you are. Show them. Show them you know the truth. That'll change them. That'll fix it. And every time we have this conversation, it never fails. Some of you tonight will do this. In your mind right now and in your heart, this is what you're saying to yourself right now. You're looking at me and you're trying to Suppress it. And you're saying. So you just want us to be a pushover. You got a major, major, major heart problem. And you know what you need more than anything else? You need to read your Bible. Because the one that's coming back dipped in blood the undefeated invincible warrior you would have been right there saying look at the pushover. So get something straight. Don't come in here Sunday morning and celebrate the resurrection of a pushover. Because that ain't what we're doing. But he knows things that we don't know. Think about it. Just a gentle tongue, Proverbs says, is a tree of life. That's what gentleness does. You let gentleness start rolling off your lips. It's like a tree of life will start to grow in the middle of your family, in the middle of your home, around you, at work, around you. At stop justifying. Stop, stop relating to people based on what they, their performance or what they deserve. And recognize how God deals with you. And let that predicate how you deal with others. And a tree of life will spring up in your, in your life. And you may be surrounded by people who don't get it. It's okay. Gentleness is the experience of mercy. How beautiful is that? See, when God handed me the slip of paper that said pardoned, It wasn't a joke. It was real. Shame on us if we ever lose sight of how remarkable and astonishing and shocking that moment was. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy.